On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, it is a fairly broad uh, palette of stories on the front pages of today's newspapers. A lot of them, of course, on the general theme of what is going on uh, in Ukraine, but they all take maybe slightly different uh, angles on them. We'll start, by the way, this morning with the um, Irish Mail on Sunday, which is based on a, a press doorstep that Leo Varadkar gave at Dublin Airport yesterday evening as he was talking people through some of the facilities at some of the uh, reception centres that are um, being being popped up in, at venues across the country. Tonish DeLeo Varadkar and his partner Matt Barrett have applied to take in a family fleeing the brutal war in Ukraine, the Mail on Sunday tells us. Uh, the Fine Gael leader who recently moved into a house in Dublin with Mr Barrett last night confirmed that the couple have registered with the Irish Red Cross to make a room in their home available to refugees. The move came amid growing unease over the government's ability to provide accommodation for up to 100,000 Ukrainians expected to arrive here. The Tonish has said that almost 10,000 have already arrived and that the government is in talks with the Defence Forces about providing mass accommodation for them. Faradkar said at the moment we are relying very much on hotel and B&B accommodation around the country but that if you turn to page 6 for 10,000 people now we're going to be looking at 20,000 by the end of the month and this is more likely to continue than slow down so we'll certainly have to work on alternatives for accommodation. He confirmed that they're talking to the, the army about the use of the Gormanstown barracks and also Mill Street that you'd be aware of which would be group accommodation which isn't ideal he says but that is the best that we can do for now. Uh, also a somewhat Ukrainian-themed story in the front page of the Business Post, but certainly taking a different approach at things. Um, households and firms face soaring prices for two years, the ESRI is to warn. Of course, all of this fueled by uh, the rising inflation, which is somewhat linked to events in Ukraine as well. We're told that businesses and households face soaring prices for two years as a result of Ukraine's invasion of, uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a leading think tank is set to war. The ESRI will also say that the public finances will come under increasing strain as the country struggles to cope with higher economic costs, including the spending required to support up to 100,000 displaced Ukrainians. It comes as the Business Post has also learned that a long-awaited review to the country's energy security is to propose a state-owned non-commercial liquefied natural gas terminal LNG and to recommend paying the operators of the Carb gas field off the coast of Mayo to leave gas in the ground as part of a contingency for future emergencies as part of a short list of uh, options for government. Officials at the Department of Environment have been asked about identifying ways to fast-track clean energy products to help mitigate against fossil fuel-related energy inflation. So a lot going on there. Um, We're also finding in the front page of the Business Post as well that 20 of the country's top developers only have a pipeline of 125,000 homes to build over the next 10 years, according to a new analysis by the Business Post. The low level of homes in the pipeline has raised concerns over the state's target to promote the construction of between 300 and 400,000 homes over the next decade to address the acute shortage of accommodation. Developers and representatives for firms in the residential sector have warned that there is not enough zoned land for housing and that it has become harder to source new sites to build housing. Uh, all of which would leave you very optimistic about the... Uh, state for the future I suspect we might come back to that in a couple of minutes time Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times if ever there was a a headline just to uh, outline just how stark uh, the world has become inside the last month it is a warning from Boris Johnson who has warned China not to choose the side of evil Boris Johnson has accused President Putin of trying to establish a new authoritarian world order and told Beijing that it risked being on the wrong side of history if it backed Russia's attacks in Ukraine. After a bloody week in which Russia bombed hospitals, apartment blocks and a theatre sheltering a thousand Ukrainians, Johnson said that he had never seen such a stark division between good and evil and charged the Russian president with trying to crush a blameless, innocent civilian population 
He said the barbaric aggression harked back to the, the darkest days of the Second World War. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, again reporting about Leo Varadkar offering a spare bedroom to housing uh, refugees. And we also learn on the front page of the Business Post today that five KPMG partners, past and present, are set to earn a combined €60 million Euro from the proposed sale of a West Cork technology firm uh, to JP Morgan of Wall Street Investment Bank. The accountant supported global shares in a series of funding rounds but will probably have invested no more than €2 million Euro in total. They each put 100000 into the company's first fundraiser in 2007. Five partners, past and present, set to combine €60 million Euro between them, uh, which is nice work if you can get it. And finally for now, the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, Micheál Martin does not expect the country's most senior health officials to be called as witnesses during an inquiry into the handling of the COVID-19 crisis. While he is proposing, uh, promising that an inquiry will have a comprehensive evaluation, the Taoiseach says he would not see like, like to see people having to mind their P's and Q's or to be looking over their shoulder during a time of crisis. And he says he wouldn't expect the likes of the Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan or the HSE's Chief Executive Paul Reid to be called as witnesses. When a crisis, a once-in-a-hundred-year event happens, like a pandemic, he says, mistakes will get made. The important thing is to learn from them, particularly public servants, because they are in the lion's den from the very beginning, uh, is what Micheál Martin had to say about all of that. Uh, The main story in the Sunday Independent is an extensive report uh, from Maeve Sheehan and David Konecki, the photographer, who are on the ground in Ukraine. They are uh, in a town which is not too far from the Polish border and they're based in a monastery which has become something of a, a site for local resistance and a major humanitarian outlet given, of course, everything that's going on there and the massive exodus of people who are passing through that town on their way to try to get to safety in Poland. Uh, so that is your quick tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's newspapers. I'm joined in studio uh, to go through those stories by Aoife Grace Moore, who's political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, and by Jack Horgan Jones, a political reporter uh, with the Irish Times. Um, Eve, I want to actually start just with that that note about um, the the shape of a COVID inquiry because today is, after all, the, the supposed to be the day of national commemoration and memorials for um, those who have died to COVID. Over six thousand six hundred people who have so far died uh, in in the twenty six counties uh, as a result of the virus. Uh, and um, firstly, I'm kind of struck by how little there is in the papers about all of that, but about this idea that you wouldn't call Tony Houlihan or Paul Reid before some sort of major inquiry you sort of wonder what it can learn if you're not going to talk to the yeah. most influential people even when you were reading out Michael Martin's quote there now I actually find it quite contradictory you know mistakes will be made yeah but surely if you have an inquiry and you want to learn from those mistakes would we not call the people who were directly involved mm. from day one mm. I find it very strange that we would even countenance having a public inquiry into this so-called once-in-a-lifetime pandemic and not call the chief medical officer I, I want you know you know when we even talk about, you know, the meaningful Christmas, mm. I want to know what happened between the NEFID advice, the government decisions, how we came to that decision, and then we know what happened, at the circumstances, mm. what happened afterward. What is the point of having a public inquiry if all the main players are not, aren't going to be in the witness I, box? Is, is he maybe suggesting that the, it, there may be a risk of it becoming a bit adversarial if you were to bring in Tony yeah, Hohan and, and he doesn't want that? Yeah, I don't want Tony Hohan and Paul Reid pulled in the witness box so we can get on to them. But I do think it's necessary for a full and frank conversation about what happened. I don't think we should be grilling them. But you do want on the record pardon the pun you do want on the record what exactly happened because they keep saying you know it's a once in a lifetime pandemic I don't think it is you know we know the pandemics are going to become more and more common now and I would like to know that we're heading under another state of emergency that we have learned from the last one Mm. so I think the notion that we would even do like if if, if not Tony Hohan and not Michael Martin and not Paul Reid who who then Who who are we going to be talking to which is a good question Jack isn't it 
Well, I think there's probably a school of thought among some in government that we wouldn't talk to anyone, you know, that there wouldn't necessarily <laughs> be a public inquiry. No, I'm only yeah, half yeah. joking there, yeah, you know, because yeah. so far, what do we know about the, the post-COVID reckoning, the post-COVID inquiry? We know that the Department of Health has commissioned a, mm-hmm. basically a desktop exercise led mm-hmm. by Hugh Brady, the former president of UCD, who will be doing this behind closed doors. There is no mm-hmm. public element to it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be very narrow, very, very narrowly focused yeah, on the public say, health do, response. Do we know very much about his terms of reference or like... The, the license that he has to talk I to I certainly people. haven't seen it the only thing I know is that it's it's focusing on public health and it's part of this kind of you know reconstruction of a post-pandemic public health system how might the public health system be put back together you know after the pandemic for the next one to be a better better, better place to confront and that's yeah. good well, right? well, but well, we're at the risk of getting off the beaten track there but that sort of sounds like he's rewriting Slongicare a little bit yes mm. exactly and also let's not forget you know that this was a pandemic that of course put the public health system under a huge amount of strain but it also convulsed politics the economy mm. society I mean we stayed home for the guts of two years yeah. Yeah. There has to be a kind of cathartic reckoning with what happened here, you know. Yeah. And, and 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 furthermore, Leo Varadkar himself is on the record, I think, in the Examiner previously, saying that he would favour or he can see he can see how a public inquiry might make sense. So mm. I do think there has to be a public accounting of this. Now there is this fear in Ireland that we don't do this well. Everyone lawyers up, but like if the problem is with the system. Maybe fix the problem with the system. Don't try mm. and avoid a kind of sense of accountability. Uh, you know, but, you know, we love teetering around the edges. <laughs> we love, but, but we, we, we also love lowering we, up small, as well. Small yeah. incremental See, changes, guys. Yeah. So we, we do love lowering up, but we also love scapegoating. Is Lads, sort of the wrong word? Love but, we, we love, but we love a panto villain. No, but he's love a tribunal, like, and you know, as a blue one to this part of the island. Like every time I watch Ireland on the years, it's like, oh, here we go, now we're tribunal, and like nothing really ever gets done. Nothing ever really changes. So I do think you're right, and obviously. Jack knows a lot more about this because, you know, currently writing a very, I'm sure, a very good book about <laughs> this. But, um, yeah, I just think if we're going to call a spade a spade, we need to look back at everything that happened. Because and ask surely, a bit more of the political system yeah, as well. Also, you know? but like, or have I you done want, that job for us already, Jack, in the book that you've written with you O'Connell about all of this? Yes. Is, is there, there's nothing left <laughs> to learn because when, <laughs> when we get to read the book. Sorry. Does that mean if Paul Reid and Tony Olin aren't going to be questioned, does that mean Michael Martin and Leo Ragger aren't either? I want to know how the government came to certain decisions because mistakes were made and I totally accept that because, as we say, we were flying by the seat of our pants for a yeah. lot of this. So we knew that mistakes were going to be made, but did they have to be made? That's what we and need also to this, talk about. Like, a lot of the response kind of bypassed the political system. You know, you had the power of NAFID, you had the agenda setting power that flowed from that and you had the fact that, you know, a very small group of people were making a lot of very big decisions. So perhaps it's time for the political system, if not through a dedicated inquiry, but through mm. the Oireachtas itself, through one of the committees, one or more of the committees to start asserting itself in here, here mm. and say, you know, huge amounts of money was spent in the name of the taxpayer protecting mm. the citizenry. Let's have a political yeah. Accountability to this yeah, process. But even at the very least, you know, you, even the, the fact you, you mention or you bring up the fact that Neffet existed as a structure, and I know that's going to be probably the, the, the spine of the book that you've written with uh, with Hugh O'Connell being published in a few weeks about all of this. But even just a, a deep dive into how a political structure came to exist, which was set up ostensibly to be some sort of health surveillance thing, but then whether it was a confluence of ministers being hands off or because it was formed in the time between um, an election and a government taking over, how it became this immensely influential and powerful thing and whether that was a good or a bad thing that so many decisions were being made without party politics or without a view to so many other areas of society like that that's yeah. that's stuff that there should be and some I, sort of I, natural I, national I, navel gaze the, over <laughs> national navel gaze I'm not sure is the billing that they give their inquiry but <laughs> well if it's not going to be some sort of national haranguing I don't know what else is going to be it should be one of the two it can only be one of the two <laughs> haranguing or navel gaze yeah <laughs> the national navel gaze yeah um, look 
I think you're absolutely right. There was whole kind of modalities of decision making that emerged across the pandemic and it was bizarre. It was a really strange way of doing it. Um, Neffet was kind of set up, not by accident, but certainly not with the kind of intent and purpose of it becoming what it became. Mm. So there's a point in analysing all that. There's a point in understanding that. There's a point in understanding how and why what happened happened. And I think it's a bit of a cop out to say, like, you know, comparatively, we've done quite well if you look at if you look at the amount of people who unfortunately passed away mm. due to COVID. Like, yeah. Nonetheless, this was a, st- a mobilisation of the state on an unprecedented scale, effectively. Yeah. We have to understand what we did and how we did it. Because if you're going by that scale, you know, oh, we didn't have as bad as, say, England had. That doesn't, that's not a good enough for me. You know mm. what I mean? I still think there has to be Absolutely. accountability. And I also would like to hear from members of NEFIT about, you know, you know, we talk about how powerful NEFIT became. Yeah. I really believe that the, the politicians did not want the accountability when it came to mm. big hard decisions. So they... It's basically threw Neffet in yeah, front yeah. of them yeah. and said it's not our fault it's Neffet's fault and yeah. for a long time there was absolute vitriol in the newspapers and media and on social media about Neffet and the people in Neffet these are public servants who work in health it was a voluntary thing that they were doing mm. in a, a national emergency and I think there needs to be some reckoning as well that the politicians yeah. did allow that to happen There is the next time I mean, you, you, made, you made this point already there's the next time argument as well like I mean and not just like would we go into lockdown or what would we do differently in nursing homes you know how might Neffet and government work better but like what would you do about kids going into school you know I think in, in the fullness of time I think the amount of time that kids missed off school will be seen is one of the errors that we probably yeah. did make. And there's a story, I think, in the Sunday Independent today about, you know, the legacy of COVID, the larger amounts of obesity amongst uh, children. Mm. And, you know, that's only one of the, the more visible ones, you know, yeah. there's the developmental Which is actually, legacy. It's, it's, that's a particular angle in today in the Sunday Independent that I'd never actually seen entertained before, the idea of, like, children comfort eating because of the stress that they had with all of this and then the knock-on consequences of two years of, of eating excessively and whether you can ever kind of pair all of that back. But that's a kind of an honourable exception today in the Sunday Independent of features like that. And the Sunday Independent has a reasonable amount. But um, Aoife, in going through the papers this morning, I was actually quite surprised that mm. for a four day weekend and, and a dedicated day today, which was supposed to be this national moment of reflection, that actually, aside from Micheál Martin's questionable approach to an, uh, a review, there's very little written in today's papers. Nothing about it. about it. I actually said to two people yesterday, I was like, oh, I'm working tomorrow. I'm going to this National Day of Remembrance. Mm no idea what I was talking about. Mm. There's been very little fanfare about it. It hasn't been built up by the government. There's been no public information campaign. Yeah. There's been nothing really said about it. And I know obviously the Taoiseach, um was in Washington and he has COVID. But um, this, I just feel like it hasn't been built up to be anything. And the whole mm. point was like, it's the four day weekend, it's Paddy's week. That we were going to do this like thing. There yeah. really hasn't been anything. I think it's partially it. because people, to a certain extent, like at a population level, they don't really want to think about it. Do you know what I mean? Like there yeah. is still this kind of post-traumatic thing, yeah. like mm. that, or and, a sense and, that and we're, we're only just out of that. Can we're we not that. And then there's this dissonance between you know the, the the very significant case numbers we're getting at the moment of the impact on hospitals and mm. the amount of real estate that's given in terms of the news agenda is not massive. Um, so I do think that there is people wanting to get a bit of space from the pandemic, and I think that the government is kind of you know leaning into that a little bit and perhaps mm. trying to get away this mm. idea right now that they might just have a kind of you know behind yeah. closed doors desktop exercise rather than a public inquiry yeah. while people are simultaneously feeling I don't I don't particularly want to think about that at the moment yeah. anyway because uh, full disclosure because I'm only literally back from Washington a, a matter of hours so when we were already thinking about what we were going to do for today's program we were sort of thinking in advance all right but well, sure that's going to be the national day for for COVID commemoration so it's probably going to be a fairly mm. major thing in the news agenda so we'll try and line somebody up and we are going to be talking to um, the Lord Mayor of Dublin Alison Gilliland who um, is 
presiding over one of the events today. We're going to be talking to her um, a little bit later in the programme. But I, I am just kind of surprised that it just seems to have been, maybe it's because it's off the back of a, a, a three-day weekend already and people mm. sort of feel like they're in an upbeat or sort of holiday mode because the weather's been quite nice and they just don't want to, but there hasn't to, to been think any, about something like more solemn. A member of the public, like we are all three dorks sitting here so we obviously know it's on. But, um, Sound, thanks. <laughs> but... Um, there hasn't been any advertising, there hasn't been any public information campaign, mm. there hasn't been any kind of run-up to it, so how do people even know it's on? Mm. We know it's on because we got the press release. Uh, one of the more surreal moments of uh, the week in Washington before the dramatic news of the Taoiseach's um, confirmation of COVID-19 on Wednesday night was uh, Philip Nolan, uh, previously the chief mathematical modeller of Neffet, um, showing up at an event on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, journalists very comically sort of saying, any chance to give us a few words about COVID? And him wandering over to a microphone and saying, actually, yes, I will happily do it. Um, and <laughs> describing what's currently going on as, as an exit wave. Uh, but all of that kind of paling into some insignificance then when we got the news on Wednesday night, very dramatically, that the Taoiseach himself tested positive for it. Uh, among the people that were in the room at the National Building Museum in Washington when that dramatic news came through, uh, was News Talk's own political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Uh, Sean, I was struggling to remember any other time where there was such uh, surprise uh, genuinely where like nobody in the room with the exception of a very very small few people seemed to have any expectation that news like that was coming well the only actual time that i remember something like that happening was exactly two years ago at the exact same dinner in the ireland funds when i was sitting next to Eva Moore, who you're now sitting next to when trump closed the borders as we were all sitting sitting there so something about that room i think just seems to encourage this whenever it happens but it was uh yeah i mean it just came totally out of the blue i think helped by dan mulhall's delivery where he the ambassador dan mulhall where he got up to the podium and said the Taoiseach has tested negative for covid but then we test him again and he's tested positive and sort of, you know, dropped it on everybody. Mm. And you could feel the energy go out of the room like straight away when everyone was kind of just processing, oh, my God, what does this mean? This isn't, you know, none of the visit is going to happen. He's not going to meet President Biden, who'd been on stage about four or five minutes earlier. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had sort of teed it up as the Taoiseach was on a, an international call, clearly didn't really know what was going yeah, on. It, it, even that was delivered kind of somewhat vaguely because even like, you know, and this is where we sort of allow people to peek behind the curtain. Like we, the journalists in the room, were, were somewhat confused as to whether the Taoiseach was on call did she say that the Taoiseach was merely, you know, always always at, at the disposal of people that needed to be brought out for a minute or was he actually on a call? And, and there's so yeah. much going on in Ukraine that it was entirely plausible that he could be on a call. But actually, no, he was taken out for entirely more dramatic reasons. Well, that's it. You went through 100 permutations in about a minute when you were like, oh, the teacher's been called away for uh, on a call. It, it's the middle of the night over in Europe. Has something happened in Ukraine? And there have been talks going on that day that had been showing actually a bit of promise. So we legitimately thought that for a second. And then the ramifications of what Dan Mulhall said hit you and you're kind of like, oh, no, actually he has COVID and this is a PCR test as well, not just an antigen test. Mm. Uh, and this is going to be really bad. Um, did you feel, uh, in your analysis of things, that uh, the Taoiseach having to, to do his uh, virtual call, albeit this time from across the street in Pennsylvania Avenue rather than across the Atlantic Ocean, that it somewhat put any kind of a dampener on things? Because you, you could argue, given the enthusiasm that Joe Biden brought to the whole day for, for St. Patrick's Day and all the different events, that actually maybe it didn't handicap things too much. I don't think it handicapped things too much from the Americans' point of view, but I think it did from the Irish point of view, because they still went ahead with the whole party. And Joe Biden was clearly absolutely loving it. He gave two quite long and rather rambling speeches about <laughs> where in which he mentioned basically every Irish person he'd ever encountered or been related <laughs> to and every story they'd ever told him about, you know, a man with two pints. 
Um, but of course, there was no Irish people in the room for it. It was all Americans or Irish Americans talking to each other. So any of the business that you actually get done on it from sitting next to them or any of the advantage was completely taken away. Uh, and, you know, Micheál Martin and Deirdre Galan and all the rest of the, his, his team, as well as the journalists, were all sitting in our hotels room, hotel rooms watching it instead. So the Americans had quite the party, uh, but the Irish delegation didn't get their bit. Uh, bring listeners up to speed with the confusion that there is now about when Micheál Martin can actually come home, because th- there's there's different interpretations about whether the CDC advice actually sort of applies in cases like his or, or whether it's even binding. So just, just bring people through all the permutations there. Yeah, so, so it could be five days, it could be 10 days. And uh, again, it is CDC advice as opposed to actual law of w- where you have to stay. So you get into that kind of grey area as well. So uh, if you were symptomatic, it would automatically be 10 days. Apparently it's not symptomatic. So it, there could be an out after five days. And the rules are slightly different over there. For example, after five days, uh, you're allowed to go out and about and walk, but you're not allowed to use public transport or that kind of thing. So it's a little bit more flexible than the rules we had in the past. Mm. So uh, the latest is they're trying to get him out of there basically before 10 days and potentially Potential negative uh, tests, negative PCR tests could help along that. But there is a, a very real possibility that he could be there until the 26th if you were applying the, the strict 10 day mm-hmm. rule. So very much the team trying to get him out of there and potentially have him meet Joe Biden in Europe when Joe Biden is coming to, to Brussels on Thursday and Friday of next week. But a huge question mark over whether they're going to be able to do that. And also the optics of it as well. You know, you don't exactly want to be uh, flouting someone else's rules to go and meet them then back in Europe. Yeah, well, this is an important point, too, that I think any world leader would need to t- t- tread very carefully even if there was a good reason for him to try and come home for political reasons that you don't want to be dispensing with other countries um you know rules or regulations or or advices it may be um finally sean uh, well he he may have to move there it'll be some sort of like taoiseach in exile do you think think someone's been sent out to buy him like new shirts and pajamas and stuff because he must be running out of stuff at this stage (laughs) that's uh that's the searing level of political insight you'll get tomorrow information um sean just uh, before we let you go because i I know that you're, you're in the airport and you need to get to other places as well um the the speculation or, or some kind of word that the irish government circles aren't necessarily stamping out Th- this notion that because Micheál martin has been done out of two oval office meetings that he might get a chance at a third before the end of the year yeah and very much well first on Nifa's point i imagine the uh, the spare room in the ambassador's residence has been raided a few times now at this stage to get him uh, get him a few bits but yeah this not only not being stamped out, as you say, by the Irish side, but very much being pushed for the Irish side is saying, oh, it's something we couldn't rule out. And uh, a lot of silence from the the American side of things on it. And w- one of the offshoots of us not actually physically getting into the White House, you just had a lot less interaction with the US side onto what their interpretation of things would be of whether uh, Joe Biden is going, when Joe Biden rather is going to come to Ireland and also whether the Taoiseach might get a second visit there. But they're very much trying to tee up that, that Joe Biden is open to that and that Nancy Pelosi indeed has invited him out to, to California to her own home district at some point later in the year before his term as Taoiseach runs out. Uh, the big question is whether that sort of hospitality last beyond the feel-good Paddy's Day weekend when you actually get into the logistics of looking at Joe Biden's diary and trying to find another day in the year where you get a one-to-one meeting with him. Now, there are times of the year it could happen. Uh, For example, the teacher usually does travel to the UN in September and particularly given this is our last year on the Security Council, that probably takes on an increased importance. So Mm -hmm. do you do a jumbo chip there where you also go to Washington and maybe you also go out to California or something else? And uh, apparently Justin Trudeau also uh, issued an 
invitation to the Taoiseach or certainly said he'd be welcome. So mix Canada in and just disappear for a few weeks off uh, over to here. So look, permutations are out there. There is scope for them possibly to meet, as I said, either in Brussels next week in, the, in a, a visit to Ireland or at the Taoiseach going over again. But uh, all of it very unclear. And given how far in advance you have to plan the president's diary, I wouldn't be massively optimistic. Uh, either way, there's a, a great possibility that you're going to be spending much more time uh, in the airport like, like you are right now. Uh, Sean Defoe, <laughs> News Talks political correspondent. Thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on all of that this morning. Uh, a few texts coming in about the idea of a state inquiry and the, the exclusion of some people from it. Uh, one person says it's outrageous to suggest that those most influential to key decision making wouldn't be part of a public inquiry. It suggests the Taoiseach had no faith in what would emerge or how they would deal with the fallout. If Neffet and the HSE are accountable, then so are the government. They are only minding themselves, uh, says one texter. Uh, another column uh, says that in a crisis, mistakes will be made because of a lack of full information and a need for quick action, of course, overrides the usual precautions. But if we now hold political show trials to find the guilty and punish mistakes, we will cripple our ability to react to the next crisis. Do nothing and you can't be blamed is going to become the standard operating policy of Irish government. That is from Colin. And we also have one text of somebody who wants today to be recognised, of course, as a day of commemoration. As we said, over 6,600 people uh, in this jurisdiction have died of COVID. Uh, John texts in to say, my beloved dad, JJ, died of COVID on the 17th of February last month. He went into hospital with other medical problems, but probably got COVID inside. On today's memorial commemorative event, can it be remembered that COVID is not gone and it's still here? Please mind yourselves and take precautions from the virus and we will not forget that it's still around. That text from John, still joined by Jack Horgan Jones of the Irish Times and by Ethan Moore of the Irish Examiner. Um, there is understandably a lot uh, in today's papers about the situation in Ukraine, the actions of Russia and Jack, uh, particularly stern, albeit perhaps maybe not a hugely significant warning from Boris Johnson on the front page of the Sunday Times today. Yeah. And it must not choose the side of evil. Uh, typically low-key inter- mm. intervention. Um, yeah, Boris Johnson has obviously rendered this as is, as is his want in kind of full technical or talking about choices between good and evil. Um, and it is a typically kind of bombastic intervention but uh, there's, there's, there's a truth underpinning it and I think that there's a lot of good coverage in the papers today about, you know, what exactly China might do um, because Hitherto, it's basically been stuck in this kind of balancing act mm. where it's trying not to annoy um, the US too much, but simultaneously not alienate the, the Putin regime, which it's kind of a fellow traveller of. Mm. Um, and I think that that, that strategy will probably uh, outlive its its usefulness uh, for China in the not too distant future because it's actually been asked to, to intervene by Russia and has, yeah. has kind of let it be known quite publicly that it, it is considering such a step. So where, where it comes down, the, the, the quality of its intervention, the, the, how, how it intervenes, whether it will be, you know, the kind of Irish style intervention of sending body armour and, uh, and mm. meal kits or whether it be something more substantial in terms of munitions will be a really important important point for this war. And there's some good coverage across the papers. I, I draw people's attention in particular to Dan, Dan Murray's piece on page 18 and 19 of the Business Post which kind of gets into the not just the kind of the economic interests of, of China but also the the, the, the rather checkered history between China and Russia mm. going back to the establishment of the People's Republic of China the recognition by the Soviet Union how that how that relationship has, has ebbed and flowed and where we find ourselves now where China has that, 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 that decision to make mm. which also must be influenced I think by the fact that Putin on the world stage is rapidly attaining pariah 
highest status, which is, is something mm, that, yeah. that is covered elsewhere in the business post. So is, is China almost his last bridge back to some sort of global community and that if China decided to, to yeah. basically cut the ties, then, then that's that? I think China holds all the cards here. Whatever China decides to do is basically going to dictate how this war ends or continues or doesn't. Um, I think, you know... When Boris Johnson is lecturing someone about what isn't isn't what isn't isn't politically embarrassing, you know you're on you know you're on to a losing a losing battle. But I do okay, think that's what you really think. Eve. Yeah, I mean, like, go off the fence. What Boris Johnson lecturing people lecturing people about choosing the side of good and evil, but um. Listen, his analogy yesterday that um, Ukraine's resistance was somewhat akin to the British people voting to leave the European Union and sort of you know set the course of their own affairs was a. A challenging metaphor. Um, to use the term tone deaf would be a compliment. Um, but then saying that, calling Boris Johnson tone deaf at the best of times would be a compliment. Um, listen, I have absolutely no time for Boris Johnson. I think um, the less attention paid to that man, the better. But I would say when it comes to the China thing, um, yeah, I, really, I think China holds all the cards here. They do not want to be, as you were saying, a pariah state any more than they already are. Mm. And I think, you know, two hours, like uh, the president of China had a two hour call with President Biden during the week. I think that definitely spells that China are worried. They don't really know what steps to take mm. now. But I do think they hold all the cards here. Whatever China decides is going to dictate the future of yeah. this invasion. Uh, the fact that it was a two hour call between Biden and Xi kind of suggests that there was a little bit of over and back, that it wasn't yeah. just rote reading of statements, that there was actually a little bit of uh, engagement. Um, the headline on, on that piece by Daniel Murray that you mentioned, Jack, on, on page 18 of the Business Post, uh, China's economic interests will decide whether it lends support to Putin's Ukraine invasion or not. What are the economic interests? Of China in Ukraine, yeah. um, well, or indeed I'm, in Russia, I'm, I'm I'm not so sure that it's it's directly. Uh, it can be as as neatly defined as their interest in Ukraine. Mm. It's it's more like is the there kind is there global, a, the for example is, is there an energy reliance? Is there a particular sort of lifeline that they're they're dependent on, or is it just if Russia keeps screwing this up that it's it's a the tide goes out for all of us? Yeah, it's like a geopolitical element, and I think I can, you can't get away from the energy element. I mean, obviously, China is a huge importer of uh, of fuels, and so is India. India, which is another um, mm. another actor in this, which has uh, I think held, kept its council on the UN Security Council and has abstained on votes on this. So you have this kind of block of I think three countries are seen as particularly important: China, um, India, and also Turkey as you know entities that can kind of um, invade on Putin to kind of yeah. consider ways to de-escalate mm. uh, in in Ukraine. And I think that that's very much the, the great white hope at the moment that like he will pull back from this merciless bombardment of, of, of cities and people um, and try and figure out some kind of way of arriving at a, at a situation that will keep all parties, if not if not happy, at least at peace. Uh, and that and there's some decent coverage in, in the papers as well. I think the Sunday Times has a, one of these kind of scenario-led approaches of, you know, three different ways it could end, you know, I'm sure all of them end up mm. being wrong, but mm. it is it is, it, is, it is interesting that people are starting to talk about that, and and apparently a lot of the talks between um, Ukraine and Russia have evolved from that kind of position where they went in and read each other's statements, as yeah. you were mm. saying, between the Chinese and the US, to the point where they're actually now having discussions. So yeah. perhaps perhaps the, the, the shape of something may emerge, which involves territorial concessions, which involves Ukraine being something designated yeah. as neutral, or, or mm. just giving up NATO forever, or giving up NATO forever, kind of you know, where, where where that leaves its its ambitions vis a vis. Mm. 
the EU would obviously prompt wider questions for mm. the EU and ultimately for member states like Ireland as well. But hopefully there is a path to de-escalation. And I think mm. that, um, as Aoife was saying, China holds a lot of the cards in this and, and the pressure that it can put on or, or you know, the, the indications it can give as to its happiness or otherwise with the Putin's war will be a big moving part. Here. And I think as well, what concerns me is like Putin has come on for a land. I think he thinks. Yeah, I he think probably he, thought this would be like yeah, a Yeah, he thought wonder. he was going to dander on the Ukraine and that was going to be the end of it. And it's becoming quite clear now that that's not what's happening. And my concern would be Putin's a very small man and he might start lashing out. That's is what my major concern is. I know like lashing out as if he hasn't been invading this country for two yeah. weeks. But I do think I would be a bit afraid that it would get worse. Um, He's a very, clearly a very insecure person. Mm. And he needs this. You know, we're seeing in Russia that this is not popular. You know, we've seen the thousands of people like, protesting, risking arrest to go and protest. He knows this isn't popular. It's also 200,000 people in a stadium in, in Moscow for a pro-Putin yeah, rally. A, a lot of whom were, were, were bust, bust in. in yes, correct. Yes. But so, like, I think, I think, I think that while it is true there's there's a there seems to be an opposition to Putin particularly amongst the kind of intelligentsia or the middle classes mm. in Moscow and St. Petersburg yeah. and places like that I think it would be a mistake to to diagnose that as a, a kind of a oh, no, wellspring absolutely. of opposition within yeah. Russia I yeah. think he still enjoys quite but a lot of support. But there's a lot support. of media coverage as well about people Russian people who are living say in Europe or Ireland or wherever else and they are talking to their relatives mm. and they are saying that you know, they're trying to explain to them that this is an invasion and Russia is their aggressor and their relatives are not taking this up because they're only getting, you know, state media. They're being told that Ukraine is actually the aggressor, that they need to keep themselves safe. Mm. So we need to take that into consideration as a serious amount of propaganda and censorship that goes on. Mm. But I think, as I said, Putin's not having an easy time in Ukraine, not as easy as he thought he was going to have. Mm. And it does appear now from the conversations and the negotiations that Ukraine and Russia are having that there is basically a path like, a couple, like this time last yeah. week I did not know where yeah, this was it, going to end so, there was just to come back to something that yeah. Aoife said you know like there's, there's a lot of discussions going on about you know landing zones and off ramps and all the rest of it and potential peace talks but you, you mentioned the importance of, of Putin to this and like he's almost like a rogue actor within mm. this you know there's this whole kind of political project of Putinism which involves greater influence over the near abroad and mm. you know the re-establishment of, of, of the kind of the Russian Empire not even the Soviet Empire um, and the degree to which that will now be turned back in on Russia itself he's talking about purifying Russia and you know there's there's language being used at the moment which is obviously redolent of the, the kind of purges of Stalinism so you know there's 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 this element to it as well which is, is deeply unsettling because um, we can't presume that everyone in this um, particularly vexed and messy foreign policy yeah. endeavour is a rational actor. Mm. Um, there's a, an interesting point about the, the proposed solutions to all of this. Like you say, that there's been actual kind of meaningful dialogue between Ukraine and Russia in the last couple of days. And we've seen some reports in the Financial Times about what a proposed sort of settlement might look like. As, as you mentioned, Jack, one of the pieces in today's uh, papers, I think in the in the Sunday Times, kind of outlines the, the three possibilities, peace, partition or stalemate, which which all sounds actually very Irish in the <laughs> kind of solutions. Um, but that all of the, the proposed solutions... <laughs> It's all sort of geared on allowing Vladimir Putin to save face or that it would all result in Ukraine having less autonomy or prerogative over its own affairs than it did only a month ago. You know, talk Mm -hmm. about how this can all be ended if they give up the Donbass or if they give up aspirations for NATO membership. And of course, you you would probably do anything to end a war that's been so brutal on the country. But to, to ultimately 
sort of capitulate and give Russia exactly what it was looking for a month ago. But by it's way not quite point. exactly what they're looking for as well, though. And isn't this how, how these things get solved? No one gets exactly what they want. And like, obviously, you wouldn't want, if, if we had our way or if the West had its way, you go back to a situation where Ukraine had the pre-war borders. But like, I don't think that's likely to happen. Mm. And I think yeah. that Zelensky's government also recognises that. And, and but, some isn't, but isn't that then reward? If Russia gets something out of an armed campaign and it either gets more territory or it gets the right to veto Ukraine's actions over its own foreign policy in the future. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and it's reward. Isn't yeah, it? it is. And that's yeah, and that's is. not an ideal outcome. Um but I think there's a real politic to this as well. You know, like that that when these things get settled to a certain extent, there is concessions on, on both sides, you know, and, and perhaps something would be acceptable to the West which would keep um Zelensky in power, you know, and, you know, retain a lot of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And these are the concepts that are being discussed by the Ukrainian government themselves as well, you know. So it's not ideal and it would make, it, it raises larger questions, I think, about the yeah. next steps of, mm-hmm. of how Putin conducts himself in Europe and how other, like, multilateral yeah. institutions mm-hmm. interact well, with him. Well, wouldn't but that be the concern, Eva? Because if, if ultimately, if this does result in Russia having something that it didn't have a month ago, obviously, like, obviously with huge loss of life on both sides, but mm-hmm. that if Russia does... If Russia was complaining, oh, we can't have Ukraine as a NATO member on our borders, and that's ultimately what they get. Or if if Russia is basically ultimately making a long play just to get back to Donbass, mm-hmm. and that's what it gets, mm-hmm. then what's to stop Russia having another go with another country, which was precisely yeah. the fear that Europe expressed a month ago? Uh, like you did with Crimea. You know, this isn't, we, we knew this was coming. Mm. No, Putin has been making these noises for a long time about Ukraine. But as Jack said, this is this is the real politics of it. People are dying. There are millions of refugees being, ex- like, sent from their homes people are being killed in the streets it is horrific war is hell and i do i have i am absolutely certain ukraine is going to have to give something up putin is going to gain something out of this we don't see a situation and where those tanks no, roll back they are not going back entirety. putin even personally like as a person putin is not going to countenance that like he has to win something and it is as you say it is him gaining something it is him technically winning because he'll have something now that he didn't have before but also Life is important. The people of Ukraine are important. And if that's what it takes, I think a lot of people Mm. in Ukraine would just like to have peaceful life in their home again. Like, it's easy for us to sit here in Ireland and say, well, you know, we shouldn't give give in to Putin because, Mm. you know, he'll not learn from it and he'll be on to the next thing the next time. If that is the the price of peace. But if it's the price of peace. Yeah. You know, everybody has to. And he has may, to he may. Fa- I mean, if he if he were to to go again, for want of a better word, I mean, a lot of the the target states are actually NATO member states as well. So there is that that bulwark. Yeah. And one of the legacies here may be a more cohesive European security policy as well. So that may be something you'd have to countenance and and confront. Which is next uh, time out. maybe something we'll have to discuss Ireland's role in it at some other future point. Still joined in studio by Aoife Moore and Jack Horgan Jones to go through the stories making the Sunday papers this morning. And Aoife, you were particularly taken by that story in the front page of the Business Post. Analysis by. Um, Killian Woods, who has surveyed 20 of the country's top developers and discovered that they're not really planning to deliver nearly as many homes as we would need to get out of the current dramatic shortage we're facing. Yeah, as usual, as usual with anything to do with Ireland and housing, it is absolutely depressing. Um, I think what the most depressing thing about, you know, Killian does absolutely amazing work. And I think the most depressing thing about it is that it's stuff we already know. We know, you know, we need around 35,000 houses built per year just to stand still. That's not, you know, including um, everything else that's going on. And, you know, there's a page 20 here in the Sunday Business Post basically saying the shortage of land available for housing is now the new crisis. Mm. So we're not building enough houses and now developers saying that they're probably, there's, the man interviewed here said he was going to basically shut up shop in the next two years because 
that because there's nowhere new to build on. There's nowhere new to build on. Like that, I, I find that hard to to contemplate because, like, if you even just pull out, this is a very crude way of doing it. But if you pull out a map of Europe and you look mm-hmm. at how big the island is and how few people currently live on it, there are mm. so many other countries that are so much more densely populated than the Republic of Ireland is. And I cannot fathom for the life of me how we could claim that we are running out of land. I know I was like slagging off earlier talking about tribunals, right? But I actually am at this stage now, right, where housing for all and everything else that we have tried isn't working. Okay, we know it's not working. There's not enough land. There's actually to be planning. We're not building enough houses. Rents are getting more expensive. Mm. Evictions are rising. Is it time now to have a full review of like every single issue and how we sort it out? Because this is a problem that's not going away and it doesn't seem that anything, you know, so like developers now are in the paper saying this is a new problem, this is a new thing that happened. Is it time to go back and have, I don't know, some kind of review or whatever it is, the government, to say here are all the problems, like basically Mm. pull it all apart and start over again? Because what we're doing now is like teetering around the edges, but we're not solving the actual problems at the heart of it and that's what makes me incredibly worried as someone who doesn't own a house and probably will never own a house if I want to live in Dublin we're just teetering around the ages here and there's new problems coming all the time so is it not can we just go back to the drawing board and start again I have, a, I have a, an anecdote which is a, re- a good counterpoint to um, to Killian's really good you know data driven piece you know anecdote is not data but nonetheless I, I celebrated my freedom from uh, isolation this week by taking a walk up the uh, the Royal Canal um, past Fibsborough uh, I was going to say know, you truly know how to go wild um, <laughs> And I was I was struck by the amount of uh, of basically kind of rundown industrial land which is kind of partially in use, mm-hmm. very close to the Lewis Line on the canal within the M50. You have a few higgledy piggledy warehouses here and there. Mm-hmm. What would normally be be, te- be deemed in another city as a brownfield development opportunity, but we have all this kind of low intensity land use yeah. close to the city. And I'm thinking back to stories that I wrote for the for the Business Post as well, five or six or seven years ago, talking about plans that the city council was working on at the time to clear this land, mm-hmm. buy up space outside yeah, the M50 they, they for this industrial. They were yeah. also doing this big thing about like trying to audit all the land I, inside what, the canal. Yes, and that there was loads you, of space there. Why would you have an industrial estate near town. I mean, for mm-hmm. every point of view, for the industrial estate, for the for the warehouse owners themselves, presumably it's easier to distribute around the city if you're close to the M50, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to start, starting in Fibs or driving to the M50 and then going around to the to the south side. And there just seems to be this kind of perpetual inertia with housing, where it's yeah. just this kind of unsolvable problem. Every government comes along with a big, a big, a big plan to fix it, the latest iteration of which is housing for all, mm-hmm. frustration builds, affordability becomes um, more, though the affordability problem becomes more acute and everyone gets more and more frustrated and, and it contributes to this kind of wider sense of political alienation, which mm-hmm. is a lot of the um, the driving force behind the vote, so, the so vote for Sinn Féin. What Fain. about then a, a real kind of nuts and bolts then, like tear everything apart and start again? But sure, like the government would turn around and say, we've done our real nuts and bolts, but we've this done, is, we've but done this housing is the thing, and like I've actually had conversations with Owen around new Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson I said like, do you honestly think that you are going to walk in here and build all these houses? Because you're not going to be able to because it's not that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, you know, are just sitting on all these houses and they don't want to build them. We're being told in the business post it's planning issues. It's lack of land development. Mm. There's all their problems going. It's not like Sinn Féin can just walk in and be like, right, here's all your houses. Mm. We need to go to the core of the issues and get them sorted. And that's why I think it has to be a full review of everything mm. because so, we can't build a couple of hundred like houses like a year and think we're going to solve the problem. Yes. There has to be, like, we, the, what are we 10 years into this now? Nothing is working. So we need to go back to the drawing board and sort it out because it's not, as I say, people can build houses, there are builders to build houses. It's all these other planning issues that we're going to have. 
Like the notion of, you know, brown land development sites lying there 10 years, nothing, like with Avenue Gardens, nothing built. Vacancy as well is something that doesn't yeah, seem to be any election. kind of substantial movement. Yeah, there are yeah. very bit vacancy and dereliction, mm. both issues. Uh, Sometimes I, I've suggested it's logic over housing before, but in a slightly different context of when you see all the rows at local authority level about, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael wanting to uh, pursue a certain model of development, which usually results in some public land being handed over to private developers, which they can then use for private gain and Sinn Féin being ideologically opposed to that. And I understand the ideological opposition, but at the same time, any port in a storm and at least if you could sort of agree a common like principle thing instead of voting down each other's plans all the time maybe so things would work a little bit quicker kind of fighting ourselves to, to a standstill I yeah. mean the, pro- mm-hmm. the problem because everyone so. wants housing and people just then end up delaying over which format of housing you yeah. want and, and it, look it would be great to have an overriding framework that everyone was agreed upon but like that at certain at, at some point has to kind of survive contact with the enemy as well and what's happening with Slauncher itself at the minute <laughs> one of the main big moving parts of that is decentralisation which is kind of being fought uh, quietly by Just the healthcare the establishment mm-hmm. and you know doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon you have the health committee holding um, these kind of you know star chamber appearance of the Robert Watt and Paul Reed, where they're, where they're saying you know the principles of mm-hmm. slunge care being abandoned so like you, you wonder is there something in our political culture that makes it difficult to do long term yeah. planning yeah, and long term problem solving Yeah care was supposed to be the easy bit because everybody agreed on it mm. you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even the stuff that we agree on you know, can't well, get well, it done. We now can't mm. agree on what we agreed on, which yeah. is why why you have Roisin Shortall uh, complaining that Robert Watt apparently is not on board with it because they have different interpretations of what it's actually supposed to be. Um, the piece that um, Killian has written for page twenty of the the Business Post it's it's uh, largely sort of anchored on an interview with uh, the executive chairman of a, a building company which has been around since the early nineteen eighties. He's got a story about a site in Kilcock which has been zoned for residential use for about twenty years. Uh, the land has capability for 800 to 900 homes, but the company's ability to develop it has been curtailed because, and this is a quote, in 2013, Meath County Council set a limit on how many homes could be built in its county development plan, which covered 2013 to 19. Uh, McGarrell Riley, which is this person's firm, was told that it could build the first phase of 350 homes on its Kilcock site and then could deliver the rest after 2019. So it commenced work on the first phase of 350 homes. The units are due to be finished this year. It carried out flood prevention works. It got the site serviced with the necessary utilities to ensure that it was ready to start the next 500 properties. But it can't proceed to phase two because in the latest Meath County Development Plan, the lands are no longer zoned for residential development. I feel How like, does that happen? I feel like crying. <laughs> like, Jack, like, Jack you, you know stuff about how stuff works. How does that happen? <laughs> Allegedly, that's a big claim. Yeah. Um, look, I think that part of it is uh, the fact that the development timelines are so long, um, particularly for uh, for apartments versus houses, which is mm. the, 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 the way that, that people are going at the moment in terms of financing them. Um, and that like the, the political ground can shift from under you and that the, the different priorities that are placed on outcomes at, at local level. Uh, electoral and political level can change but it does seem to be strange that the zoning can can shift so quickly I'm mm. a little bit hesitant just to kind of take take what is yeah. is, is said by by property developers at, at face value but you yeah. look at the um you look at the the league table of people that have actually assembled uh, land banks and it does seem to be so uh, unequal to the task at hand. Yeah. Like so, mm. there's there's only there's only two developers in in the country apparently 
Cairn and Glenvay, which are two of the big PLCs, the, the, the publicly quoted companies that actually can deliver 10,000 homes over the next decade. Yeah. And we need to do between 30 and 40,000 per year to keep pace. Uh, text to 53106, the government are asking developers to work harder by building more houses that the price can down for buyers. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. We are asking the wrong people, says one texter. Uh, on that cheery note, uh, we're going to have to draw a line under it. Even more, uh, Jack Organ Jones, thank you both very much uh, for joining me in studio this Sunday morning.